Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be finishing it up this morning. Um, and really, we're going to kind of see Jonah's heart even more through this. A few weeks ago, when we looked at chapter 2, I made this statement that we see this, really, this mindset change of Jonah, but we didn't really see this heart change of Jonah. And chapter 4 is the reason why we see that. And it's how we see that to be the case. Because what we saw last week is David kind of uh, just brought this to kind of fruition towards the end of his sermon. Is that as people who have received the deep grace of God, we are to be people who display that same deep grace to those around us. And he really pulled that out of chapter 3 in really looking at Jonah's obedience to the Lord. Now, Um, When you look at chapter 3 in context of only chapter 3, and if it stopped there, it would almost appear to be a good thing. It would almost appear to be that Jonah did exactly what Jonah was supposed to do by God's call on his life. And certainly he does to some extent. But what Jonah doesn't do, and what Jonah actually ends up doing, is that he does what God has called him to to do, Because Jonah essentially realizes that he couldn't run from God's calling on his life. And he couldn't run from the fact that God was going to redeem the Ninevites. And so Jonah does what God called him to do because God essentially got his attention in chapter 2 by throwing him into the sea and the boat and all of those things, right? And so as we kind of continue through the book of Jonah this morning... What I want us to really see um, is this, as we've looked at this whole time, this depth of God's grace. We really saw it coming out last week in this reality of God redeeming the Ninevites. But we really see it coming out even more in his heart behind why he chose to redeem them. But we also see it because we see this comparison between God's love and Jonah's hatred. We see this comparison for God's desire to save and Jonah's desire to see the Ninevites destroyed. And so, kind of as a main point that I'm going to try to expose in chapter 4 is we kind of come to a conclusion in the book of Jonah. And this is really just a culmination of everything we've looked at so far, is that as the sovereign creator of the universe... God has the power over life and the right to take it away. Which leads to the self-righteous, and I would add their angry prophet, Jonah, to have issues with whom God decides to destroy or deliver. And what I mean by that is, as we've kind of looked at in the history of this time frame of Jonah going to the, the city of Nineveh, is one of the biggest issues he has with it is the Assyrian Empire has destroyed the northern kingdom's capital. And so what's going on here is Jonah hates these people because they killed his people. They caused them to be exiles. And so Jonah has this deep hatred for them. But what Jonah rightly understands at this point in his life, and we're going to see it jumping off the pages a few more ways, is that God is certainly sovereign. God was the one who called him, but when he runs away, God is the one who throws the sea into distress. 
God is the one who calms the sea as soon as Jonah lands in the water. God is the one who appoints the well to swallow up Jonah. God is the one who appoints the well to spit Jonah out on dry land. God is the one who maintained his life within the fish. The reality here is that God is sovereign and Jonah understands this. But what his issue is, is that God decided to allow the Assyrian Empire to destroy his people. But God decided to redeem the people that were used to destroy his people. So Jonah has a deep hatred for these people, but he's certainly angry and self-righteous. And we're going to see that in this text here. We're going to see the angry prophet as we look at verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to see the self-righteous prophet in 5 through 9. And then in 10 through 11, we're going to see God's deep grace explained. In verses 10 through 11, explain everything that's happening in this entire book. So I'm going to try to camp there as much as possible, but it's only two verses. So we're going to see how it goes. But let's first and foremost read it all together. And then we're going to pray and then we're going to dissect it together. Let's start in verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life away from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And Jonah said, do you, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat at the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And the, and the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed the scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, we pray that as we approach your word, we would do so in a worthy manner. God, as you hide me behind it, God, the things that I expose from it would be the things that we could edif be edified and built up on. 
And God, that it would be based on your truth and in your truth alone. We love you. We praise you. Your son's holy name. Amen. So as I said earlier, we're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 4. And what we're going to see in this is the angry prophet. Now, obviously, when you look at 5 through 9, you also see his anger kind of come out a little bit more. Um, but we're going to see more of a self-righteousness in Jonah at that point. And so we're going to begin by looking at this angry prophet in 1 through 4. And first and foremost in this, what we see is that God's grace displayed displeased Jonah. In verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. See, much like the rest of this entire book, the verse first really just kind of um, sums up what you're about to look at in the next nine or ten verses, okay? So it's ten verses here, but three was nine and all that. And so this first verse kind of sums up everything that's about to happen. And so what we see in this is that very just pointedly is that Jonah was displeased and angry at God's grace on display in the life of the Ninevites. He was mad. He was upset. He was, he was dumbfounded by the fact that God would even redeem these people. But see, but he knew that God was going to do that. Because when you get to verse 2, we see why Jonah did what he did in chapter 1. And I, I try to hold this back until we got to verse chapter 4. I probably should have pulled it out a little bit more in chapter 1. But we know exactly why Jonah made the decision he made. And he made it because what he says in verse 2. Let's look at it together. He says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Okay, let's pause there. When we read the a counter in verse 1, it doesn't have this communication between Jonah and God, right? And so all we know is God calls him to go to Nineveh, and then he gets up and he leaves and goes to Tarshish the opposite direction. So we don't see this conversation between God and Jonah, but apparently there was one that Jonah, whenever he received this call from God, he responded to God, and he says, Was this not yet what I said in my own country? So Jonah apparently was talking to God before he ran away, and he says this, he says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why did he make haste to flee to Tarshish? Why was he quick at this? Why did he get up and go immediately? He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah left his home country. And he went to Tarshish. Why? Because he knew God would save the Ninevites. Jonah did not want them saved. Jonah wanted them to die and face the wrath of God for their rebellion against God. Jonah is upset. And he ran away. Why? Because he knew God was going to save them. Now, I think it speaks to his arrogance that he maybe thought that he could kind of thwart the plan of God by running away. Or maybe he just didn't want to have a part of it. But we saw that God certainly had a different plan in chapter 2 and even in chapter 3. But Jonah, in his rebellion, it was because he knew God would save. And that verse right there is a pull out of Exodus where God expresses that he is that. Because this is who God is. Now, when you read Exodus, it goes on to says that he will not let the, the wickedness go away, right? That he is going to judge the wrath. He's going to judge with wrath and punishment and all of those things. But we certainly see here that Jonah knew 
that if he went and did what God called him to do, God was going to save the Ninevites, and he just did not want that to happen. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to say this kind of briefly, is that often in our life, I don't think we ever think this. I don't think we ever come to this conclusion. I don't think most of us, not all of us, there's some people that may have this deep disdain for people in our lives or people we know, and maybe there's a deep hatred within us and a lack of forgiveness or whatever the case may be. That's certainly the case for people in this world. But knowing you guys and knowing this congregation, most likely, unless there's something deep down that I'm just not aware of, this most likely is not the case for us. We don't have a deep disdain for people that prevents us from sharing the gospel and making them disciples. So we can't relate to Jonah in the same way. But what we can look at this and see is when we don't do the things that God is calling us to do, to make disciples, to share the gospel, to proclaim it and teach it to those around us, to be prepared to do so and to take those opportunities, I think what we can see in this is that it is a display of hatred towards them, though it may be unintentional in our own hearts. Because if God's wrath is going to come about for those who do not know Christ, and if we don't know who God is going to save, then we're called to proclaim it to all people. And if we're called to proclaim it to all people, when we forfeit the opportunity to do so in our lives, then we may not be hating them in our hearts, but we're hating them in our deeds. Let's keep going, though, in verses 3 through 4. It says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah is so mad. He's so angry that he would rather die himself than see God forgive the Ninevites. He would rather have died in Nineveh before God redeemed them than to see them delivered from their sin. This is how angry he is in this moment. This speaks to his heart. See, chapter 2, we saw this moment where he confesses and repents and turns away and commits to doing what God's called him to do. Chapter 3, we see him do it, though reluctantly he does it. But what we see in these first few verses is he does it, but his heart has not changed. And what I would argue is that's what leads to the next thing. See, this anger that he allowed to build up and this hatred, not only for the Ninevites, but possibly even towards God in some ways, led him to the self-righteousness that he's about to display in verses 5 through 9. So he's the angry prophet that I would argue led to the self-righteous prophet. Let's look at it together in verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. All right, so this is very basic, but there's a lot of history here, okay? So Jonah, um, after God does not allow him to die in Nineveh, after he expresses his anger and his dissatisfaction of the Lord, He then decides, well, I'm going to go out of the country. I'm going to go to the east of it, and I'm going to sit at a distance, most likely on an elevated place, 
within this area and he's looking out on the city to see if God is going to destroy them or if God's going to redeem them. So after he's certain God is going to do what he's going to do, he's holding out hope that maybe his anger, maybe his words to, the, to God convince God to do something different. That instead of relenting of sinful actions and saving the Ninevites, maybe Jonah convinced God to do the other way. And so Jonah goes out into the east of the city and he's out at this elevated place most likely and he's looking out over the city and he's waiting on the destruction of the city. What's so interesting though, it says that he made a booth for himself. Now, when you hear the word booth, you may think of like when we're at Caledonia Day, that's technically what you may call a booth or whatever the case may be. You may think of antiquing and things of that nature. But a booth in this day would have been some form of a tent. But the reason why this is significant is that in Exodus, well, yes, in Exodus, um, right before Joshua enters the scene, right? So right there in between um, Moses kind of falling from grace and not now able to go into the promised land because his rebellion and Joshua taking over, they begin this practice called the festival of the booths. And what they would do is they would go outside of their camp and they would sit there and they would develop these booths for themselves, these temporary dwellings, much like a tent today. And they would construct these and it was symbolic of what God has done for them. And what God was about to do for them. And so they did it in preparation that they were not in their home, but they're about to go into their home and God is going to deliver a people for them. And then after God delivered all of the ites for them and gave the promised land to them and all of those miraculous things of delivering and casting judgment on these evil people and giving the land back to his people. They continued this festival, even to the point in Jesus' day, when you see that the, the, the festival of the lights was right there around the same time as this festival of the booths. It's all the part of this Passover season. And so what they were doing, though, is they would build these tents and they would be outside of the city and they were essentially looking forward to the destruction that God was going to provide against the enemy of God's people on behalf of God's people. What Jonah is doing is the same thing. He goes outside of the city. He builds this tent. He's waiting for God to destroy the enemy of his people. But the reality here is that God does not do that. God does not deliver judgment on these people. Rather, he delivers forgiveness and just grace upon grace upon grace. But Jonah, in his disobedience and in his anger, he goes out to the city and he's waiting for this to happen. So he's waiting and he's hoping that something else will happen rather than deliverance. Verse 6, we see that, verses 6 through 8, we see that God meets Jonah's self-righteous desires with grace. So even in the midst of Jonah's anger, and we're going to see self-righteousness here, we see this glimper of grace for Jonah. It's really this moment that God's showing grace to Jonah so that Jonah could even repent himself and, and turn to God. But we certainly don't see that happening. Verse 6 says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it up over Jonah, that it might be a shade for him over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah builds this tent. And so as night comes, because he says it came up at night and he went away at night. So one night it comes up. And what God does is he provides this plant that magically grows and covers shade over Jonah so that Jonah could reflect on what's going on in this day and that the the heat beating down on him wouldn't cause him discomfort to make him go even deeper into this anger and in this despair. God is offering this moment of solitude for Jonah, this moment of peace for Jonah so that maybe Jonah would, in in his anger, Somehow see God's grace coming through this plant and then repent of it and turn to God rather than being angry at God and angry towards the Ninevites. So verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. Let's not forget, the. let's not just kind of skip over. It says, so he was exceedingly glad. Where in verse 1 he says he was exceedingly glad. It displaced Jonah exceedingly. So the same word being used here for a dramatic effect. He was discomforted and he was angry in verse 1. But now Jonah is exceedingly glad. Why? Because of this plant. He's happy that this plant is showing him shade. Why is he happy that this plant is showing him shade? Because all Jonah cares about is Jonah. That he's the prophet from God that deserves this comfort in this moment of looking out on Nineveh, hoping that God would destroy them. See, God, I would argue, meant this moment to point Jonah back to himself so that Jonah would repent of his anger and look towards him. But that's not what happens. Verse 7, this is when the test occurs, right? This is when the opportunity for Jonah to learn the lesson occurs. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed the scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. I want to kind of point this out very quickly. It says here that God appointed a plant, that God appointed a worm, and that God appointed the sun, the east wind. God is certainly in activeness, in activity, doing something here. He's actively doing something in the life of Jonah. This wasn't incidental. This wasn't happenstance. God was doing something in the life of Jonah. He caused these things to happen. We see this all throughout the book of Jonah. So the sovereign God is at work in Jonah's life. He's trying to pull Jonah back to himself. But what is Jonah being? He's being self-righteous, thinking that he is better than the Ninevites, that he is better than everyone else in this scenario. And so what does Jonah do when the plant goes away? And the sun beats down on him. Instead of reflecting on the goodness of God for the day of comfort, and except for running away from his anger and his self-righteousness, he goes deeper in despair. And he asks God, and he says to God, it's better for me to die than to live. But what does God say in response? Verse 9, but God says to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
this narrative changes. Earlier he said, do you do well to be angry? He didn't give a clause here. Now he's given a clause. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Because now he's angry for the plant. He's not even angry at the Ninevites' redemption. He's angry that the plant is now gone. Because he's still there. He's still waiting. He's, he's still hoping the Ninevites would be destroyed. This day of comfort did not lead to change in his life. It did not lead to repentance. And Jonah actually responds this time. At the end of verse 4, Jonah doesn't respond. Here he's getting even more bold, even more self-righteous. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Think about what it would take for a moment like this to occur in the life of a prophet of God. That he's bold enough to speak back to God and to tell God, yes, I'm right to be angry in this circumstance. See, we may not do this verbally in our own life, but we do this practically in our own life. When God calls us to things or God calls us to holiness, but we continue to live in sin or we continue to do things that are contrary to his nature, we may not be verbally saying, yes, God, I do right to do what I am doing. We certainly are saying, God, I am right to do what I am doing by our actions. But Jonah, in his self-righteousness here, speaks back to God as if he knew better than God knew. As if he was in the right and God was in the wrong. See, Jonah literally thought that he knew better than God in this moment. Why? Because he thought that the Ninevites needed to be destroyed for their wickedness. Where God was delivering these pagan idol worshipers who destroyed their people. Jonah, in his self-righteousness, Seeks back to God with arrogance. And he says, yes, it would be better for me. I am right to be angry, and I'm angry enough to die. Jonah now leaves the scene. Jonah now actually leaves the pages of Scripture. We know nothing else of Jonah. Um, we would certainly know that Jonah does not die here um, because this story was written sometime later. And there wasn't anybody accompanying him. So he had to have told this story to someone else for this story to be written, right? It's just a reality to the circumstance. But we don't know nothing else of his life. So the only thing we know of Jonah, because the only other place we see his name mentioned is in 2 Kings. So the only thing we know of Jonah is this anger, self-righteous, rebellious prophet of God that God certainly uses for good, but not out of the intent of the man whom he used. And the reason why I'm making an emphasis of this now is because we may title this book Jonah, and we may focus on him a lot. We may even focus on the well a lot, or the big fish that swallows him up. But the entire purpose of this book is found in verses 10 and 11. The entire reason why we have this book is not the other 30-something verses we've looked at, but it's in these two verses here. And it says this. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which then came into being and night and perished in night. So now 
Jonah's kind of been comparing himself to God throughout this whole narrative. Now God's flipping the pages on him, flipping the tables on him. He says, look, you pity this plant. You didn't labor for this plant. You didn't plant this plant. You didn't water this plant. You didn't labor over it. This wasn't a process in which you brought it up. This wasn't a product that you you made. This wasn't something you put into effort. You did nothing to grow this plant. You did nothing at all. It came up at night and it went away at night. But you pity it. He's saddened and he's angry at the destruction of this plant. He's upset that this plant is gone and destroyed because it brought him comfort in life. But he did nothing to make it. He didn't plant this tree outside of this city and labor over it for years for it to grow large. Why is God saying that? Verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We go ahead and explain the much cattle, okay? Because your minds may get stuck there for a second. Jonah has no... Jonah has no grace towards the Ninevites. He, has, he sees no worth in the Ninevites. And so the, the, the including of the cattle here, here would speak to maybe Jonah would at least see the benefit that the Ninevites would have in providing cattle for the rest of the world. As David pointed out last week, it was a trade port essentially, right? And so possibly he's saying, look, you should at least have pity on the cattle there, right? If in your hardened heart, you should at least see that. But the point God is making here is, should I not pity Nineveh? He leads him with this question. You pity the, the plant that you did not labor over, but sh- and should I not also pity Nineveh, this great city? Why is God saying this? It's because just as we've seen throughout the entire book of Jonah, as we see over the sea, we see over the fish, we see over the worm, we see over the tree, God is at work in the universe. That God is the creator of all and all things are created to bring him glory in some way or some fashion. There is nothing that has been created and there's nothing that has been made or is living or is a part of this world that is outside of the control and the hand of God. And so God has created this great city, Nineveh, with 120,000 people and many cattle. Why? Because he is, guys, he has a purpose for them. He has a reason for them. They're not created by accident. They're not in this area by accident. God has a reason for them. And I would argue that in their sinfulness, God had already displayed one of the reasons for them in the deliverance of God's people, the destruction of God's people in the capital city of the northern kingdom. But he wants it to go beyond that. And he wants his grace to be known and his relenting nature to be known to the world around them by his saving of this people group. God says to Jonah, you pity something you didn't labor for. Should I not pity 
the people I made. What I want us to see in this is the Ninevites were terrible people. They were sinful. They were wretched. I mean, come on. They just destroyed God's people. Worshiping false gods. Probably sacrificing babies and things of the such in their idol worship. Awful, awful people. Rebellious, wretched, depraved. We would be Jonah and quick to judge. What I want us to see in this is that God's grace goes deeper than we could ever understand. Because when we read this story, what I want us to also see is that we are much like Jonah. We're the angry, self-righteous prophet that think we know better or we forget to do what God's called us to do, or we neglect what God's calling us to do. Maybe we even run from it. But before God intervened in our life, we were the Ninevites. We were the wretched, sinful individuals, contrary, living a life contrary to that of God, worshiping idols, sacrificing things at the, the, the altar of worshiping, living in rebellion, whatever sin it was, we were a wretched and wicked group of people. We were no different than the Ninevites before God redeemed us. So when we read this story, I'm going to encourage you to maybe read it again this next week. I want you to put yourself in the place of the Ninevites and really understand that that is who we were when God redeemed and saved us. See, this is the gospel. This is the reality of God's grace. That he would take people, this perfect and holy and righteous God that has created all and certainly has control over all things and created all things for a reason and a purpose. He has taken a wretched and wicked individual's that have rebelled against him, that have sinned against him, that even caused the death of his son. And he redeems and he saves them. Why? Not for their goodness. Not for their, 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 their sinlessness. Not for what they will do in the world. But why? So that he can receive glory in saving them. Every one of us has been saved because God will receive glory from saving us and because God does have a plan. But the primary reason is to glorify him. In this, we see the gospel shouting at us because we were a part of that 120 persons that did not deserve the grace of God in our lives. But God's deep grace goes beyond all of our understanding. And I am so thankful for that. I am so thankful that when God saw me and he saw you, if you have trusted in him, he saw a man or a woman that he had labored and toured over, that he had created for a reason and a purpose, primarily to glorify him, and he decided to save us. In all of this, in all of Jonah, I want us to not miss this. 
Because the only holy one, the only righteous one, the only one doing what is right in the book of Jonah is God. And he is redeeming people. And he is saving people. And he is displaying a grace that is deeper than we can ever understand. I want to explain this one last thing since I got ahead of myself. He says there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. What that means, it's really hard to translate and make sense. But they really didn't even understand their own wickedness. They didn't even really understand their own need for God. They really didn't even understand that they needed God to redeem them until God did a work in their life. They were ignorant, dumb people living a life absent of God. And that just projects us even farther in the fact that this is who we were. You may have grew up in church. You may have had a religious background. But before God redeemed and saved you, we were a clueless people that didn't know our right from the left. So the first thing I want us to see in this implications and applications is remember that we were once these clueless people that didn't know our right from our left. But also, in Jonah, we see this deep hatred. But I think the way that, maybe this is just me, but I think the way that kind of jumps out to me in application for us is that rather than being hesitant when God redeems a people or a person, we should celebrate when God decides to save the unsavable. Rather than being hesitant, that we would celebrate. Certainly we would go at it with caution, make sure they were discipled and poured into as they should. But often we as saved people we're so hesitant to see God do a work that we can tend to kind of jump and skip over it. And also with that is that we would be okay when, when we reach the people that seem unsavable, that it would change some of the dynamic of how we do church. Which we're pretty untraditional, so it may not change a lot here. But the third thing I really want us to see As David pointed out last week, Jonah had this calling to take the news of salvation to the people of Nineveh. We have a same and similar calling, right? We're called to take the gospel, a news of salvation, to a people group that don't know the right from the left. By people group, I mean the unbelievers, people that don't know Christ. We're called to do the same thing as Jonah, but what I want us to kind of pull from this story is let's not do it reluctantly. Let's not do it where God has to bend and twist our arms a little bit. Let's not do it out of responsibility, but let's do it out of a desire to see lost people saved. And once they come to know Christ, let's make disciples. Our mission statement here at Redeemer is simply that Redeemer Church desires to be a multi-demographic community of believers for the purpose of glorifying God by what? Preaching the gospel, making disciples, and resting in Christ. 
Let's preach the gospel and let's make disciples. In the book of Jonah, we see God's deep grace on display. And the amazing thing about it is that God has called us to that same mission and that same ministry of reconciliation through the gospel. Not reconciliation of people to people, but reconciliation of sinful man to a holy God. And he does that by proclaiming the gospel through the word of God. So let's be people who proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you so much for this time together. God, my prayer now is as we go into this last song of praise. God, as we just sing of your goodness. God, as the song will see, the song and psalm will say that we would taste and see your goodness. Father, I pray now that as we look at our community, as we look at Columbus, God, as we even look at the possibility of going out into it next Sunday, God, we would see a, a Nineveh all around us. And instead of being like Jonah, going reluctantly or going in fear or going in doubt, Father, we would go out and we would understand rightly that you're calling us to be messengers of your good news. And God, if you desire to save, just as you desire to cause a storm and you desire to grow a plant and appoint a fish and appoint a worm to do your work, God, you will certainly use us to do your work. We love you and we thank you in your son's holy name. Amen.